Hello, everyone. This is Doug from our Sports Illustrated, uh, and we usually do our Greg Cosell podcasts on Friday, and usually through the next two months are going to be about the draft, but uh, we enlisted Greg for a special Thursday podcast discussing what's been a really boring and uneventful and not at all exciting free agency period. So, Greg, I don't know what we're going to talk about for the next hour. I guess we're going to have to do what we usually do and just make stuff up. Yeah, well, we're good at that. Yeah, we are. Um, seriously, the uh, as we're talking, DeMarco Murray is apparently on his way to Philadelphia. The Cowboys are apparently moving on. We're hearing, you know, six million year or whatnot. Um, and those are all speculative reports. But obviously there's been a lot of talk. I mean, you're at NFL Films. You're very familiar with the Eagles and kind of where they where they are and where they're going at any given time. There's been a lot of talk about Chip Kelly's plan, and before we get into the individual transactions, I think right now that may be the most fascinating story in the NFL is the various twos and fro's on what the hell is Chip Kelly doing? What are your thoughts because you've, you know, you've been there since he came there. We've talked a lot about how things have changed. What are your thoughts about the moves they've made and kind of where that team is going? Well, I've always been a believer in, in, in free agency because it's so exciting uh, initially, and it's always easy, Doug, to uh, overreact one way or another, positively or negatively. I've always been a believer that you have to let things play out over time. Uh, you know, the, the phrase I use, which is not mine, of course, I think it comes from Robert Frost, is there's miles to go before we sleep. It is from and, Robert Frost. That was very literate of you. There you go. So, um, well, that's because I went to Amherst College, and the, it was, the library was the Robert Frost Library, so I know those kinds of things. Well, I thought you majored in basketball, though. I did not, actually. Oh, okay. Uh, but uh, anyway, I've always believed you have to wait. Yeah. And if DeMarco Murray indeed signs with the Eagles, the, the interesting thing about it is that was not part of Chip Kelly's plan because he contacted the, the Eagles. They did not contact him, based on what's reported anyway. Right. And in fact, I think it's fair to say that because the Eagles had reached agreement with Ryan Matthews, and I would think if DeMarco Murray's going to sign that the uh, agreement reached with Ryan Matthews, since he's not signed on the dotted line yet, that Ryan Matthews will not be an Eagle. Because they also have this guy named Darren Sproles, and he's pretty good. Right, and and I think they tendered Chris Polk, uh, so they they would have their three backs. Yeah. Um, so you can't say this was part of a Chip Kelly plan. Uh, I think with Chip, you have to wait and see. You know, I, I can't remember who I heard speaking about this the other day, but someone made the analogy between Chip Kelly coming into Philly and sort of remaking a team and organization in his own way, and Pete Carroll coming into Seattle with John Schneider. And, and uh, as I'm sure you know, living up in that area, Pete Carroll was not everyone's first choice to be a, a head coach again in the NFL. Decidedly and, not. No, and uh, they came in with a team that really was not a terrible team. They still had a veteran quarterback in Matt Hasselbeck, and, you know, they came in and they kind of remade the entire team in their image. And I think we've seen the results. I think most people would say the results have been pretty good. So yeah. it, 
it's it's hard to to say negative things if you try, and at least I try. As some might disagree, but I try to take a a longer term view, an overview, and try to think about it reasonably. Uh, it's certainly easy to say, hey, in, in trading Deshaun Jackson, in trading Lashawn McCoy, in letting Jeremy Macklin walk, that what is Chip doing? But I think you have to wait and see how this plays out before we make these sort of broad and grand assessments. Well, the the comparison I made on Twitter yesterday is that right now Chip Kelly is Pete Carroll without the good fortune of Russell Wilson and Marshawn Lynch. And I'll throw a quote right back at you, and I think other people have said it, but I heard it from a Branch Rickey book, uh, Luck is the Residue of Design. And I think when Pete came in, he had an absolute plan to remake that defense in a very specific image. Um, They, you know, Hasselbeck was getting older they, I mean, that the Flynn thing would have been disastrous, obviously, but he had a guy in Schneider who was a Wisconsin guy and was all in on Russell Wilson. They, I mean, honestly, it was, I mean, it was a good fit, but you have to say that given what we knew about Marshawn Lynch in Buffalo, to get that guy for a couple of mid-round picks is one of the, I mean, if you could have predicted that, you should have been in Vegas. So I, yeah, I think with Seattle, there was... There was luck and there was design. And I think with with the Eagles, I can see the design. I just haven't seen the luck yet. And when you're dealing with so many players who either have injury histories or are on a bad tread, as Murray is from a workload standpoint, you're asking for a lot of luck. I would agree. And, and, you know, it's funny you mentioned Seattle. You know, we know what Richard Sherman has become, but uh, and teams can say what they want about fifth or sixth or seventh round draft choices, but they don't know that those guys will be good players and certainly not superstars. So I think you have to, you know, you make a great point, but let's assume that DeMarco Murray does sign, and then who knows? There's more teams that are now apparently interested. Um, the number being thrown around, I guess, is $6 million. I would bet Murray could get more than that somewhere. I'm not saying he's going to get 12 or $15 million. He clearly won't, but it all depends, I guess, on what he wants to do. But let's assume they do sign Murray. I mean, obviously, it's his own run game. Now, in Dallas, which was a more conventional NFL offense where the quarterback was under center, which is not the case in Philly. They didn't run inside zone hardly ever. They ran outside zone and they ran um, a, a lot of uh, you know counter trap, uh, duo, that kind of stuff. They didn't really run inside zone a whole lot. No. That's essentially the foundation of the Chip Kelly offense out of the shotgun. So I'm not suggesting he can't do that, but it, it, it is a little different. I, I don't think it'll be a big problem. But it'll be a little different for DeMarco Murray. The offense is different. He also ran with a fullback an awful lot in um, Dallas. There won't be a fullback in Philadelphia. Well, I I was talking to LaShawn uh, down in L.A. He was working out at Travell Gaines' gym in the offseason, and he was kind enough to sit down for a pretty long interview. And I was asking him about the Chip Kelly offense and the advantages it provides to running backs. Because obviously, going back to Oregon, we had a bunch of guys run, you know, the Kenyon Barners of the world who barely made a dent in the NFL, um, you know, 17, 1,800 yards. And, yeah. and you know this as well as I do. That, and what LaShawn said was, basically, this offense creates spaces for running backs that I've never seen before. So Correct. I, I think whatever, and you know, the power counter trap, the the duos and the the, the chips and stuff that you did in in, um, in Dallas, going to more of a zone run scheme. I think once it, I mean, we're we're doing all this assuming he signs. 
the the change in scheme to me would be mitigated by the fact that he's just going to have more openings. Right. Now, you know, the, the, the interesting thing here is I'm sure a lot of people are going to say as we speak now, well, right now their starting wideouts are Riley Cooper and Jordan Matthews. Now, there is a draft coming up, and it's another good receiver draft, and we'll get to that in the next couple of weeks when we get back to our draft series. Uh, so I'm sure since it appears pretty strongly that they're not going to trade half their draft or next year's draft for Marcus Mariota, that they will keep their draft choices, so they'll draft. Um, you know, I do think that there is a certain element with Chip's offense, and and I think a lot of really good offensive coaches believe this, uh, that the scheme can take care of a lot of things. Yes, would they prefer great players? Of course, everybody would prefer great players, but you make choices. And I think that Chip Kelly does believe that his scheme can present opportunities for uh, players to play well. I mean, it's it's look – they re-signed Mark Sanchez, okay? Now, Mark Sanchez is not going to be the starting quarterback. Sam Bradford uh, apparently will be. But Sanchez's numbers were better last year than they ever were in New York. We could debate whether he was a better quarterback, but it is a numbers-friendly system. Players, quarterbacks, and wide receivers put up numbers. Well, I think one of the uh, one of the more fascinating things, actually the most fascinating thing about Kelly's offense last year they took Jordan Matthews out of Vanderbilt in the second round, and I, I was not a big fan of that move. I thought Matthews was, you know, a good receiver in space. I saw him do the, to- the Todd Pinkston alligator arm stuff a little too much. I thought he was not maybe physical enough. But Chip put him in the slot, and he was the second most prolific slot receiver in the NFL last year behind Randall Cobb. And right. I didn't see him play a lot of slot at Vanderbilt. So... I point to things like that, and I say, okay, Chip's got more of a plan than we think. You just have to wait for the right players to fit that. I mean, going back to your Richard Sherman uh, comment, I remember when Sherman came in, and he was a hot mess for the first few games. He didn't start that first year. It took him a while to get it. Now, once he got it, of course, he was amazing because it was a perfect you know, combination of, of scheme and player and attributes and all that. But I look at a thing like, you know, you can say, well, what about Marcus Smith? You know, where Josh Huff is on a milk carton. Yeah, but he took a guy who had some middling attributes as a college outside receiver and made him the second most productive slot receiver in the NFL in his rookie year. I look at things like that and I go, okay, he's got more of a plan than we think. Well, there's no question he has a plan. Um We'll see how it all plays out. Like I said, we still have the secondary stage of free agency. We still have, you know, there's a, there's Marcus Gilchrist, I believe, is a safety who I really like. I, I don't believe he's signed anywhere, has he? Um, I'd have to I check. don't think he has, yeah, but I could be wrong. Sometimes it's tough to follow every single signing. Um, I don't believe he has. I really like him as a player. Yeah. We'll see where he signs. Um, but there's no question Chip Kelly has a plan, how it plays out once they start playing games, all that remains to be seen. Everybody has a plan. Uh, we'll see. I mean, like we were saying, when you when you either draft players late in rounds or sign players like a Sam Bradford with a clear injury history and not only an injury history but some concerns about his game on the field, then you're taking a chance, and you have to do that in sports sometimes. It's like when you draft players, uh, Doug. You know, at some point, you got to play them. And 
that's why you draft them. Like Marcus Smith, their first-round draft pick a year ago, a lot of people have already decided he's a bust. I can't answer that question one way or the other, but they're going to have to play him. They drafted him in the first round, so unless he truly is that and, and he can't get out of training camp, he's going to have to be on the field this year because that's why you draft guys. Yeah. Well, let's uh, let's finish up with some Eagle stuff here with the, uh, the, the Foles-Bradford trade. I'll give you my take. Um, I think Bradford... I mean, I, when he came out of Oklahoma, I thought he was going to be, I thought he had the potential to be like a mobile Tom Brady. He had some of the most impressive college tape I've ever seen from any quarterback. And he had a good first year, and that, that was the year with Pat Shermer, right? Yes, it was. And, that, and now Pat Shermer will be, uh, he's in Philly, so that, that, that's part of it. I think, you know, protection issues, coaching issues, injury issues, receiver, you know, whatever. This this is now a guy who's bulkier with pressure. You know, it's when you have sort of a reductive offense, you become a reductive quarterback, and I think that's what happened. What has happened to Bradford? What do you, I mean from the little we've seen of him in the last two years? What is your take? Well. The biggest concern I would have with Sam Bradford right now is the fact that I believe he's become a little gun-shy and a little skittish. And you can't really play quarterback effectively in the NFL when when you're like that. Now, what that has done is it's taken a guy who, when he came out of Oklahoma, was a very accurate passer, and it's made him not quite as accurate. And for people who have not seen him, they automatically assume that, oh, he's a really accurate passer. Well, he was. He, he hasn't been over the last couple of years. So that would be the biggest concern now. He's also going to an offense with Chip Kelly, who does as good a job as any offensive coach in the league at getting the primary receiver open. Uh-huh. And that's, that's why the Mark Sanchez's can go up from 55% to 64% completion. Chip is a master at that. But as we know, he, he can do that often, but you can't do it for an entire game because there are going to be situations where you can't do that. So we'll see. But, I mean, when he came out of Oklahoma, as you know, everybody had him pretty much as a number one pick in the draft. They, the, the Rams did not reach for Sam Bradford. No. So, uh, you know, he obviously was viewed that way. I'm sure a lot of people uh, still view him that way. You have to take what's said publicly with a grain of salt, salt when Chip said yesterday that, oh, I got, a, I got an offer with a number one pick. Well, no, he didn't because – then the Rams would have gotten the same offer, and they would have traded him for a number one pick. Yeah. So you have to take that kind of stuff with a grain of salt. Are you telling me that coaches lie, Greg? Uh, did I say that? No. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. But, uh, but you know what I mean. I mean, you know, come on. That's, there's you a, know, yeah, there's they, a bunch of fluff out there. We know this. Exactly. So, but... We'll see. We'll see where you know what Sam Bradford is. You know if he can truly stay healthy, number one, and if he can be a little more um, firm in the pocket, which he was, by the way, in college. Yeah. the The full side of this, um, you know, going back to his college days, he's never a guy that I was in love with. When you know, bodies around his feet or color in his kitchen or whatever you you know, he's a great guy with a clean pocket. I don't think he falls apart under pressure, but I think it was clear that his, you know, hyper-efficient 2013 season, you knew it was going to take a dive because of offensive line injuries and such. But this is, I mean, they just cut Jake Long, the Rams did. They just cut Scott Wells. They're still trying to figure out whether Greg Robinson is a tackle or a guard. Um, I'm not exactly sure how this is going to work out for him. 
Well, that's the issue with Foles as well. Is Foles is another guy that um, he wasn't anywhere near as decisive last year in an offense in which uh, he, normally you're, you're set up to be decisive, and he wasn't decisive. So he held the ball too long. He broke down in the pocket. His footwork really uh, became undisciplined. And the longer Nick Foles stays in the pocket, the less effective he is in, in many areas, including arm straight. So... You know, two years ago, if we were having this conversation a year ago, we would say Nick Foles was trending upward. Uh, we might not be saying that he's a top three or four quarterback, but we certainly would have said he was trending upward. So last year, he clearly took a step back. Um, you know, he's another we'll see. Uh, you know, he, he's he's played well uh, more recently than, uh, than Sam Bradford has, but they're both we'll sees to a certain extent. Yeah. Definitely. Um, I want to finish up with the, with the Eagles, and we'll move on to other teams because yes, other teams did big things. Um, the Byron Maxwell. I mean, it's it's twenty five million guaranteed. It's a lot of money, but what? I mean, to me, that's sort of it's market forces dictate. Maxwell yep. was going to get overpaid by someone because a he was in the Legion of Boo, and b he actually played pretty damn well for the most part. This is not this is not a product of the system. He became a pretty good cornerback. Um, and when you look at well, actually we can talk about Kerry Williams too because I'm interested in that sort of pseudo trade because Kerry Williams is now a Seahawk. So let's let's frame the question this way: What did they have in Kerry Williams, and what do they get in Byron Maxwell? Well, I think Williams is gone for a number of reasons. And again, I'm not there every day, but I live in the Philadelphia area, and I think there were concerns about uh, him as a person. Um, As a player, he was probably up and down this past year. Uh, The Eagles clearly like to play man coverage. That's what Bill Davis wants to do. That's their approach. And Kerry Williams struggled down the stretch, as did Bradley Fletcher, but they both did. And I think uh, with the other issues, I, I think they just felt he was not worth the trouble. You know, sometimes players can go to teams where there's better leadership. I mean, clearly Seattle with a Richard Sherman, with an Earl Thomas, with a Cam Chancellor. We'll see how that plays out. Yeah, I don't think Kerry Williams is, is a bad player. He's certainly, I don't think he's as good a corner as Byron Maxwell, but he's not a bad player. Now, Maxwell is, is interesting. He fits what the Eagles want to do. I spoke to a number of people at the Combine, and I thought the tape showed this for the most part as well, who said that he's he's best as a press player, that that's the way you want to use him. That's where you, you, bet you get the most out of him with his length, with his movement, with his understanding of how to play press, that he's not as good a player in off coverage. And the Eagles will play a lot of press, and that's what they'll do with Byron Maxwell. That's why they signed him. Uh, that's how they want to play defense, that's what he does best. That's his best attribute. Um, you always have to disregard the money. You, this is why it's great for the players. Because at the end of the day, if you want the player, Doug, and you know this, you've been doing this a long time, you got to pay the money. Yep. Otherwise, you don't get the player because someone else is going to pay the money. To, that said, though, I think what the Seahawks paid Kerry Williams, so it's like three years, $18 million, $7 million guaranteed, that's about where he is. The thing about Maxwell, and I, I was watching Kerry Williams, obviously, because he signed with Seattle. And I know Davis likes press. He also plays uh, – They he had Williams in a lot of press bail. And yeah. I think that maybe Maxwell's best attribute is as a press bail corner. 
because he can turn his hips quickly from that sort of, I have my back to the sideline and I'm waiting to read the quarterback. He flips his hips quickly. And I think the thing he does really, really well, and it makes him the better off-corner in Seattle secondary, I think he's a better off-corner than Sherman because that's not what Sherman does, is that he is a really good, he, he has what I would call excellent peripheral vision. He doesn't just understand his concept, he understands the, concept, the, the concepts that are going on around him. Um, and I think that's really going to benefit him in Philadelphia. Yeah, and like I said, I think he he fits exactly what they want to do, and I think they probably had him targeted pretty much right away um, because their corner play last year, particularly down the stretch, was killer. It it hurt them a tremendous amount. And uh, it's interesting what they did. They also signed Walter Thurman, who you know well Mm -hmm. uh, as well, and it leads me to believe, barring another corner signing or a draft choice, if they now think they're going to make the move, and of course Thurman is an unknown at this point, but let's assume that he can play. He's a slot guy. Do they now take Brandon Boykin, who's been clamoring to play on the outside for the last year? Do they put him outside? Is he is he the option on the outside without anybody else, uh, even though he's only 5'9"? Is he the guy they now put outside? Uh, you're talking about Boykin? That's not what I do. I think Boykin is at his best as a slot corner. The thing about Thurmond is he's already had two major injuries in his career. Well, that's the problem. Um, and they signed him to a one-year deal, I'm sure, yeah, it for much money. You know, he, I mean, I, I haven't seen as much. I, I, I like Boykin a lot in the slot. Do you think he can be an outside corner? You're always look. There are shorter corners. I mean, you and I both love Brent Grimes. I think Buster Screen had played very well on the outside last year, in particular. It, it's it can be done. Um, in an ideal world, when you're you know looking at traits and attributes for outside corners in today's NFL, uh, you don't start at five nine, but it can be done. So, they, and if they need to do it because they don't have anyone else, then it, it would strike me that as their roster is structured right now, that makes that's what they would have to do. Yeah. Uh, we'll finish our Eagles thing with uh, one little note from ESPN Stats and Info. This game's run. Among free agent running backs, DeMarco Murray is second in yards per rush and shotgun over the last two seasons. Number one is Ryan Matthews. So there you go. Well, they probably knew. <laughs> so I guess Chip does have a plan after all. Well, hmm. well of course, uh, San Diego's in the shotgun, I think, more, as much or more than any team in the league. Exactly. So that makes sense that Ryan Matthews would get a lot of carries out of the gun. Exactly. Okay, uh, speaking of the Seahawks, uh, you may have heard about this, Greg. They traded Max Unger in a first-round pick for some guy in New Orleans who's pretty good. Did that just happen? I wasn't aware of that. Uh, it's it's been rumored, and I think it may actually be true. I just uh, I was reading my Telegraph, and it just came across that yes, Jimmy Graham is a Seahawk. Well, I'm waiting for my Pony Express uh, arrival, and it hasn't come yet. The Oregon Trail. Um, so, I mean, I can go blah 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 about what I think of this. What do you think of this? I think it's a really good move, and, and, and again, I don't know what's in John Schneider's mind. I, I never presume to know, you know, why guys do what they do, um, but I think that the thought process likely was something like this: they have a, a really smart, mobile quarterback. I think they feel that that Russell Wilson, with the way he plays and the way they play offense, that they can camouflage and compensate for the loss of Max Unger. As good a player as he is. Well, by the way, Stefan Wisniewski is visiting Seattle today. Well, 
yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, and they may sign a center, they may draft one. But yeah. the point is, Wisniewski's not as good as Unger, but no. he's certainly an NFL starting caliber center. He's good enough. Um, right. So I think they feel that that position on their team is not essential. Whereas it's imperative that they get a receiving threat and ideally a tight end because, as you and I both know, Russell Wilson is an outstanding seam thrower. That might be his best throw. And obviously now you have, this goes back to the old Sid Gilman school of thought, the father of the modern day passing game, that if you can control the middle of the field in the passing game, it opens up everything else. Mm -hmm. And now they have a player that they can use to control the middle of the field to say nothing of the fact that he's also a matchup weapon. You can line him up anywhere. And I think they see more value in Jimmy Graham to them than they do in Max Unger. It's as simple as that. And it takes nothing away from the fact that a healthy Max Unger is probably among the two or three best centers in the league. You know who else likes to control the entire field with seam routes? Sean Payton. The Saint? Who's this? Sean Payton. Yeah, I was just going to say the Saint. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a pretty, and, um, pretty similar construct there. Right. And, and But yet, and, and again, I, I don't know what Sean Payton's thinking. Again, I, I can't answer that. But I think their feeling with a guy like Drew Brees is it's much more important from your offensive line perspective to have your three interior guys be studs because Drew Brees is as great as he's been. He's still six feet. He still needs space in front of him. Drew always handles the outside rush. He can handle that himself. He's really good at that. They need space in front of him. And I think that they feel, and Unger's not old. Isn't he only going maybe into a 60 or something like that? Yeah, but his body's getting old. He's missed, I think, 13 games in the last two years, and it's been... Yeah, he's missed. Well, and again, there's a a lot of that going around with these trades and free agency guys who have injury histories, but but a a healthy Max Unger is obviously a really, really good player, and I think that's really important to... Sean Payton and to that that pass game is to make sure that in front of Drew Brees is is more important than the outside of Drew Brees. Well, I'll tell you why I love this deal for Seattle. Um, you and we talked about this in the Super Bowl podcast. The eighty yard pass to Luke Wilson in Week Sixteen against the Cardinals, and I know you know. Exactly I know the play really well. Um, where he hit the fake to Marshawn Lynch to the left side, and the entire Arizona defense went that way, including Tyron Matthew, who was kind of supposed to be covering Luke Wilson. And Luke Wilson had a baseball... Not kind of supposed to, he was. Yeah, uh, I was being sarcastic and missing. Right, right. Um, (laughs) Well, your eyes go in the backfield with that team because of the shotgun, because of Wilson, because of Lynch. Your eyes, it's tough to play with constant eye discipline on every play. Luke Wilson, who, by the way, is a pretty flippin' good tight end himself. He's kind of an underrated, you know, above-average guy. Had a baseball field around him for an 80-yard touchdown catch, so... When we talk about the construction of Seattle's offense, which A, is very simplistic in its overall passing concepts, but B, relies more on chaos out of motion, sort of organized chaos out of motion, than any other offense in the NFL, where does a tight end, a tight end slash, I call it, it's a big receiver, he doesn't block, he's flexed out wide a lot, he's a, he's a big-ass receiver, how how does Jimmy Graham fit in this offense? I mean, we know he does it well. He fits well. Well, I think he fits in. I think he fits in exceptionally well. And I mean, this is a team that 
is pretty multiple formationally. Now, we, we've talked about their pass game before not being that multiple, but formationally they're multiple. Uh-huh. And if I'm not mistaken, I believe Russell Wilson was in the shotgun more than any quarterback in the NFL this year. But I could be wrong. You may uh, know that. Yeah, I know that's true, and they ran a lot of offset. They certainly ran more offset pistol than any other team. That was like their, there was almost their base offense. But see, what, what a guy like Jimmy Graham does, and, and this is just one of the things he does. But now, you talked about Luke Wilson, okay? Now they're going to have a situation where they can line up with two tight ends, uh, 12 personnel. Now, if you're a defense, how are you matching up to that when you play Seattle? Because you have the major run game threat. So are you matching up with your base personnel because they, they have two tight ends on the field and because you're concerned about Marshawn Lynch? Or are you viewing Jimmy Graham as theoretically a wide receiver and are you playing nickel, in which case you have a lighter body on the field to defend the run game. So first and foremost, it causes game plan issues for defenses and how they want to line up with what personnel. And if they choose to line up in base personnel uh, to, to match up to the run game, then you've got all kinds of opportunities with Jimmy Graham, with shifts, motions, getting him outside, uh, presenting opportunities for your wide receivers. Uh, and, and even though they may not have great wide receivers, if you get a wide receiver working against a linebacker or a safety, you feel pretty good about that. So it, this just presents all kinds of options and opportunities. I went back to, and Tremont Williams is not what he used to be. I mean, it's one of the reasons he's not, not signed. But uh, you remember Jimmy Graham's touchdown against the Packers midseason where Graham went in motion from, I think he went in motion from right to left. I know he ran up and out into the end zone. And he got Tremont Williams in man coverage and then just vaulted over him. And I remember yeah, yeah, they, that was one of their staple plays. They did they did that route concept an awful lot, and then they've got Graham matched. He would beat corners running running that route, which he's capable of doing. Correspondingly, and this must be discussed, um, there was a play against the Falcons in Week 16 where he ran the exact same route and Breeze overthrew him by about five yards. And I think the problem in that play, I don't know if you remember that or not, but I think I just watched it this morning. I think the problem on that play is that Breeze expected him to go up the stem and Graham didn't. He sort of cut, cut off the route. And it speaks to a larger issue. Graham may have been injured last year. He disappeared for, long, for pretty decent stretches. There were times when he and Breeze were not on the same page. Graham was targeted with and caught a lot fewer deep passes in 2014. And I also think that Breeze had some definite accuracy issues. So... I mean, when you... Uh, yeah, when, I mean, when I don't think at, we need to debate Jimmy Graham. I don't. I mean, he had, he had a, a, probably more drops this year as well, but he's still as, as strong a matchup weapon as there is in the league, and I think for Seattle, it's a big-time signing. Uh, it's a big, it makes perfect sense for a team like that uh, because it allows them to stay true to what they are because he's a tight end. So, as I said, they can line up in 12. This doesn't take anything away from their run game foundation whatsoever. Well, I think it would add to it. Uh, and I'm not, yeah, I'm, I'm just saying, do you think those disappearing stretches in 2014 should be of any concern in the future? You know, those are always hard questions. I mean, I think you have to look at the guy's talent, his traits. Um, obviously, I don't know Jimmy Graham. I've never talked to him. You know, if you feel good about the, the, the person, then no, I, I don't think you worry about that. I, I think he's a young player, and I think he's really, really talented. And I think he, he really helps what you want to get accomplished on offense. Yeah. 
the Miami Dolphins are obviously looking to accomplish something on defense, sending in Dominic Su to the richest deal ever given a defensive player. I don't think there's any question that Sue is, I mean, in my mind, he had the best college tape of any player I've ever seen in, in his last season uh, with the Cornhuskers. And I've seen very few defensive tackles be this dominant over a long stretch of time. And I don't want to argue money or, you know, where they should allot their resources. Um, but, you know, they just cut Randy Starks. Cameron Wake is obviously going to be helped by this. I would have loved Sue and Starks in the same interior line. How does this fit um, just from a value perspective? Can he do more things in Miami? Will he do different things? How does this work? I mean, he's a really good player, you know, and then again, I think he was a really good player in Detroit. Detroit played a lot of the wide nine last year uh, because they had Jim Washburn there. Um, Miami won't probably play as much of that kind of thing, but he's, you know, Sue is is a a major force inside. Um, He's a really, really good player. He's not... I wouldn't call him a pure pass rusher. He's kind of a, a methodically relentless, powerful pass rusher. Yeah. I mean, he had a play, uh, he had a sack in the game against the Cowboys in the playoff game. I think it was in the third quarter. It was part of a three-play stretch in which he just dominated, where he just literally walked uh, Martin, Zach Martin, back into Tony Romo. Yep. You know, he makes more of his sacks like that. He's not necessarily a quick, twitch, explosive sack guy like that, but he's obviously a guy who can rush the quarterback but he's just a dominant player inside he's one of those guys and uh you know obviously Miami felt that their defense which down the stretch kind of faded quite a bit as you recall uh I think they felt that they needed to be really strong uh up front and they didn't feel that they got that down the stretch and this Here's the prime target. Again, the money is the money. Someone was going to pay him that. So they got the player that is – he was the best player available on that side of the ball. My favorite Sue play last year was in the Cowboys game as well, and it was another sack. And it was when uh, he walked Martin back and sort of to the offensive left side, and Martin gave him this arm bar, and Sue just wrestled into the ground and then chased Romo around the pocket for about five seconds and took him That down. was the next play, by the way, yeah, Doug. He had a three-play stretch. The first play, uh, he didn't make the tackle. It was against the run, but he created the play. The second play was the play I mentioned, and the third play was the, is the play you're talking about. It was a, it was a three-play stretch, consecutive plays, and he just dominated. Yeah, a combination. And there was one play against the Dolphins. Where I was watching where he, <laughs> he stopped Daniel Thomas for, I think it was a two-yard gain, and he took the entire right side of Miami's offensive line and just destroyed it, it like single-handedly. And so it's he's, the combination a, he's a powerful, of, powerful man. It's the combination of speed, strength, and effort that I don't think can be replicated. I mean, I, yeah, I love the move. I just, you know, it's... Okay, they have other holes and blah, 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 but um, it, that, that's going to be interesting to see. Um, well, which comes down to free agency. You have to decide. You know, if you want to, that's, that's what you have to pay. If you, if you feel like it's pricey because of the rest of your team, then you don't pay it. They obviously felt like they wanted to pay it. When we talk about defensive players and sort of uh, Doug and Greg Binkies, one of them has been Pernell McPhee for a number of years, the very versatile pass rusher who used to be with the Baltimore Ravens and will now be a, well, I guess Vic Fangio has called him an outside linebacker, but as we know with McPhee, he's going to line up everywhere. And this, to me, 
is maybe the most interesting transition of player and scheme in this free agency period because the Bears are going to go to a quote-unquote 3-4, which in Fangio's case is a lot of 4-2-5 base if it was the way it was in San Francisco. Um, and we like McPhee for a number of reasons. They're, they're paying him as a starter. Correct. So how, That's how the only we, question. I, I love this move. How do, what do we think here? That would be the only question you could possibly have, in my view. As you know, I've loved McPhee going back three years. Uh, he's a very versatile player. Um, I guess he sees him as, a, you know, as an outside backer in, in, in their system because Vic's going to go with a 3-4 uh, as a foundation. Um, the, the question is, can he go from playing 25 really good snaps a game to playing 65 really good snaps a game? That's the only question you have with Pernell McPhee. And it's a big question, by the way. It is. Well, if he, if he runs a base like he ran in San Francisco, uh, do you think he's best at that Ray McDonald role, sort of the, the strong side in backer who can rush the passer but can also stop the run. Because I think, I mean, for one thing, and I watched a lot of tape on McPhee because I wrote a piece on him and other people this week, I think he gets really short shrift as a run defender. I think he's much better at that than people think he is. Yeah, I'm wondering, you know, I don't know the answer to that. I'm wondering if he's could be seen as better in the Ahmad Brooks role. Oh, Okay. I, I don't, again, I don't know the answer, but I think he's capable uh, of playing the Ahmad Brooks role. I, I, to me, I, I would put him there before I would put him in the Ray McDonald role, but hey, I guess Fick Fangio will determine that. Well, and just to define, what is the Ahmad Brooks role? Well, Ahmad Brooks was the left outside linebacker for San Francisco, and uh, when they went to their to their nickel or, or sub package, he was basically a, a, a defensive end slash linebacker, still playing on the left. And uh, so, I, I to me, that's the role that he would best fit uh, if you're if you're keeping him as a relatively static player. Now, Vic at times moved Brooks around, moved Alden Smith around, you know, and I think he'll do the same thing with Pernell McPhee. Did he stunt Brooks inside? I seem to remember Brooks getting some pass rush from the second level. At times, yeah, as I just said, they moved him around at times. Now, in their base 3-4, obviously Brooks was an outside linebacker, and I think that's, to me, that's what McPhee would be. Yeah, um, although, and I, I just want to clarify how interesting he is in this role. I've seen him get sacks. I, I saw him beat Joe Thomas uh, as a wide nine. I, yep. I saw him beat uh, the Colts' right guard, whose name escapes me, uh, as a one-tech shade uh, with his hand off the ground. I mean, and everything in between. And it's it's a rare player. Who, you know, I can think of Michael Bennett as another guy who has gotten past pressure from every gap. But these are rare players, like guys like that. And, you know, and keep in mind, Vic Fangio has a lot of background in, in multiple defenses. So he did what he did in San Francisco he, with his personnel. There's, that doesn't mean he'll do the exact same thing in Chicago. You play to your talent. And McPhee is a guy who's been moved around a lot and been successful lining up in different spots. And that's it, it becomes an interesting, just to, to veer off for a moment, you know, you, you have Lamar Houston. They have a couple of good young defensive tackles. It'll be really interesting to see where they line guys up. Because I remember Houston at 300 pounds when he was in Oakland, would actually get pass pressure as a hand-off-the-ground edge defender. So he's another right. guy who can move around. No, you're exactly right. And, and I think at this point, um, 
you know, Vic, look, I think Vic is starting from scratch with this team, to be honest with you, on the defensive side of the ball. So I think that, you know, he obviously signed McPhee. They signed Antrell Rawl. I mean, I, I, I think he's starting over here. Uh, based uh, on know, the defense they had, I don't think he has any other choice. <laughs> no, they were a really bad defense last year. So I think he's he's truly starting over. Yeah, and I think part of that was the, see, the scheme, because they kind of took the hot tub time machine back to 20, like 2003 when you could run, you know, cover two all day, but... Personally. Right, so, well, you know, we don't know. As I said, just to reiterate, uh, the big question is can McPhee jump from 25 to 65 snaps a game and still be a really good player? And you know what? I don't know if he can answer that question for sure until he does it. Uh, I'm going to take the over. I, I, you know, I, I think they, they would have played him more, um, except that they have these guys, Doomerville and Suggs in Baltimore, and they're pretty good. Oh, and Brandon Williams and Haloti Nada. Let's talk about Nada to the Lions. How do you see that working? Well, Nada now will, I mean, essentially become a defensive tackle. He um, he moved around this past year a little bit more uh, in Baltimore, um, but I think, you know, in a 3-4 defense, although, again, you're dealing with uh, Terrell Austin, who's, I think his background is also pretty multiple. And, you know, I think Jim Washburn's retired. I'm not sure he's still involved with Detroit, so I'm not sure what's going on up there. Uh, You know, with Jim Washburn, you play the 4-3, essentially. Um, We'll see. Uh, You know, if they stay with a 4-3, he's a defensive tackle. If they start becoming more multiple, then he can line up at at the end in a three-man line. Uh, He can do more things. But uh, my sense is he'll be a defensive tackle in a 4-3. Do you see him, I mean, a couple of things came to mind when they made that trade. The Lions used to run, last time I saw them do it was a couple of years ago, they had a three-man front with Sue at end, and they'd put one of the tackles right, but they'd stack the tackles um, almost like a stack release. You know what I'm talking about? Yep. I don't know what that form is. They used to do that, um, uh, I remember a couple of years ago when they had Sue and Vandenbosch. Yes, yes. And Sue would actually be the deep. They would both line up outside of the offensive tackle. Sue would actually be outside of Vandenbosch. Yep. It was kind of true. We saw the Seahawks do that this year a number of times when they did it with Bennett and Averill. Yeah, they would line, well, they would line Bennett and Averill up on one side really close together and then two linebackers on the other side. It was usually Kevin Pierre-Lewis and someone else. And then the outside guys would both stunt inside and the opposing offensive line went, uh, I don't think that's legal help. Um, well, I remember they did it a number of times against Bobby Massey when they played Arizona. Uh, they had both Bennett and Averill lined up outside of Bobby Massey, the right tackle. Yeah, didn't work out too well for Massey. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm, I'm interested to see if they – Do you th- could he play – and I don't know if he did this in Baltimore, but kind of when Red Bryant was in Seattle and he played that El Humongo run-stopping five-tech end, do you think they might put him there sometimes? Uh, if again, you know, if their front changes, obviously, if it's still a wide nine situation, then that's not where the defensive end is going to play. If their front changes, yes, he could certainly do that because that position is essentially a, a three-four-five technique. Yeah. And now, apparently, they're not going after Fairley either. So uh, no, they're letting him walk. Yeah, which I think is you know not a horrible idea. Based on injury consistency and blah blah blah. Well, let's talk about the Indianapolis Colts, Greg. We have uh, it's Veterans Day in Indianapolis. Frank Gore, Andre Johnson, and Trent Cole. The the one. And Todd Harriman. There you go. The one 
move I love here for the Colts is Frank Gore. This, I mean, this team got to the AFC Championship game without a functional running back, and I, I was, you know, when the, all the talk about Gore to Philly, I wasn't sure how that would work because he's so used to power counter trap. Pep Hamilton was in San, I think Pep Hamilton was on the Niners coaching staff and Gore had his best year, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, was Pep Hamilton, was he with Stanford or with Harbaugh too? I think so. Yeah, I... I so anyway, there are a lot of corollaries schematically because the Colts kind of run that same sort of blocking scheme. No uh, question. I, I love this move. I you know I think Gore has a couple good years left in the tank. Now, I do not believe that the Colts have the talent that the Niners did in, say, 2012, when I believe they were the best offensive line in football. But I've seen San Francisco's line drop off a lot in the last two years, and Gore was still making plays and still gaining 1,000 yards. So... Um, your thoughts about this? Well, I think it's tremendous. Yeah, and, and by the way, uh, Pat Hamilton was at Stanford from 2010 through 2012, and 11 and 12 he was the OC. There you go. So, uh, you know, that, that, that gap scheme run game, tower, counter, uh, that's what they run. That's what he's familiar with. That's what Gore has been running for the last three years under Harbaugh because it's the same offense. Uh to me, Frank Gore did not look like he lost anything last year. I know there were stretches in which he didn't gain as many yards. I do not think it was a function of Frank Gore. No. At the end of the season, the last two or three weeks, he looked very, very good. I thought his attributes did not decline. To me, over these last number of years, there's not been a better back in the NFL at getting through small cracks at the point of attack. I don't think any back gets skinny better than Frank Gore. And and then he also speaks to how pointless it is to judge 40-yard dash times for running backs. My guess is if Frank Gore ran a 40-yard dash at any time in the last three, four years, he'd probably run a 4-9. You know, and so if he did that at the Combine, people would say he's undraftable. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, there was nothing to suggest that Frank Gore lost it. This was a team that in Indianapolis that had no run game whatsoever. Zero run game. Zero. It was awful. So... I mean, you know, to me, this is a really this is a team that clearly believes there are a few players away from taking that next step. They they replace Reggie Wayne with Andre Johnson. Johnson will be better than Wayne was last year. Um, you know, Todd Herman's I'm not sure what Todd has left, but he's a veteran, uh-huh. and and he'll compete on the offensive line. And, you know, Trent Cole still had a pretty good year in Philly last year. He's another guy that didn't necessarily look like he was losing it. He, he played well in Philly last year. Well, just to go on Johnson for a second, I, I love when people are, oh, he, you know, his stats declined, so he must not have a lot left. I mean, I know he's going to be 34, but he caught 85 balls for 936 yards and three touchdowns in an offense that, that I mean, I went back and watched a lot of Johnson tape when they released him, when Houston released him, and... I was aghast at the quarterback play. Oh, yeah. It was, I mean, worm burners and overthrows, and I, I really don't know how you can expect anyone to be any better than functional in a quarterback situation like that. And by the way, I don't think Brian Hoyer is a graphic improvement, but that's a different story. So he goes to not only a quarterback who's a bit better than the guys they had in Houston, but with Frank Gore, you now have a guy, I mean, I, I quibble with the stats a little, but Pro Football Focus had luck with 13 touchdowns and one pick when he ran play action last year. 
I mean, I went back and charted those touchdowns. I look at it more like 10 and 1, but still, maybe the most efficient play action passer. He ran a crap load of play action at Stanford. You put Gore there, and then you have Johnson as the big play action target, plus T.Y. Hilton opening everything up downfield and taking a safety off the hat. And you've got an entirely different Indianapolis offense. Well, and you also have. Uh, Dante Moncrief coming into his second year yes. with a very similar body type to Andre Johnson. So now Johnson uh, can help uh, Moncrief because I loved Moncrief coming out. And uh, so, no, they've got weapons now. And the, the critical thing, which has been the critical issue for the last two years, my guess is they'll address it in, in the draft, is their O-line. Uh, but they certainly now have some weapons. And, and, you know, Andre Johnson is the only thing that I guess for him over his career that a lot of people look at is it, that he didn't catch a ton of touchdowns. But other than that, he's been a pretty pretty darn good player, wouldn't you say? Yeah. Well, I remember I remember years under Kubiak where they would get there and get there and get there and just kick a bunch of field goals. So I don't put that – I really don't put that on him. I mean, I, if you think Andre Johnson has lost it, uh, any listeners out there, I'll just say go watch three Houston games last year and tell me about the quarterback play. And then we can, you know, figure it out from there. Um, another team in the AFC South that's made a lot of moves is the Jacksonville Jaguars. Uh, we know they've been, you know, they had to totally deconstruct to reconstruct. They get Julius Thomas. They get Jared Odrick. They get Devon House, which I think is a very underrated signing. Um, and with Thomas, obviously, so much of this is dependent on Bortles' development. But uh, just isolate his attributes for us and, and kind of tell us what he has and what he doesn't. You talking about Julius Thomas? Yeah. Well, Julius Thomas is your classic matchup piece as a tight end because he's a, he's a guy that's basically built like a big wide receiver. He's a basketball player. That's his build. He's another guy that can line up everywhere. He can beat uh, safeties outside the numbers, which he did numerous times over the last number of years. He can run seam routes. He can run vertical routes. He can run those deep crossing routes. He's a true um, matchup tight end who can stretch the field. So, you know, he gives you – every offense, Doug, thinks in terms of dimensions, and he gives you more dimensions. The big thing that Jacksonville needs to do now, and whether they do it – you know, supposedly they're late in the DeMarco Murray deal, and we'll see how that play, you know, ultimately plays out, although more and more it seems as if he's going to be in Philly. But, but uh, they need a running back, and they need a running game that they can count on on a week-to-week basis. The good news for them is if they don't get DeMarco Murray – which I don't think they will, uh, it's a pretty decent running back class. And it, it's a deep, it, it, deep I, I think, I, I mean, we'll get to this, but I think it's a pretty darn good running back class. Yeah, that's our next podcast uh, after this yep. emergency one. <laughs> and by the way, who knows where Ryan Matthews goes now. If, if the Eagles signed to Marco Murray, Ryan Matthews, uh, you know, he reached an agreement, but he didn't sign his agreement. So he now is uh, would, be, would go back on the free agent market. Yep. Exactly. Um, are there any free agent signings that you've seen that you thought, okay, people aren't talking about this, but this guy could be really special in the scheme he's going to? Boy, that's a tough question. There's been so many. I mean, it's hard for me just to think of it in, in, in those terms. Um, you, you've probably been closer to it than I have because you have to write about it. What has struck you? And then I can, you know, just because there's, there's so many. Mm, well, the one, I mean, I'll go back to McPhee. 
uh, with the Bears is the one that I think is the most intriguing. Um, what do you think about, well, let's talk about Jared Odrick and Devon House in Jacksonville's defense, because if Senderic Marks comes back healthy, I mean, that guy, and I've said it before and I'll say it again, that's one of the four or five best defensive tackles in the NFL, in my opinion. He comes I've back, always really liked Jared Odrick, by the way. Yeah. I think he's a good player. So, I mean, they just released Red Bryant. They're trying to get pass rush together. Um, what does Jared Odrick do? Because I don't think people really, and he played in Miami. People don't talk about Miami's defense. What does Odrick do for a team? Where does he play and what does he accomplish? Well, he's predominantly a D-tackle, but he can line up at the end. He's not a pure pass rusher, but I think inside he's got pretty good quickness. He's a good combination of quickness and size. And he was part of a rotation in Miami. He'd probably be part of a rotation in Jacksonville as, as well, which is good. But I think he's, he's a really good rotation player. He's an upgrade. Uh, he's, a better, he's a better player in Jacksonville than whoever was going to play. So that's what teams are trying to do. Um, you know, it, it's interesting because that team is good. I come back to Jacksonville, and, and it, to me it's the run game. They've got to be able to run the ball. And by the way, just to sort of pre-cue our, our next podcast, you know, I know that there's this sense just because running backs don't get paid a lot of money and because in recent years they haven't been drafted high, but I'm not so sure this idea that the running game, it doesn't, you know, it, there's two different statements here. Running backs have been marginalized and the running game isn't important. Those are two totally different statements. And I don't think that the second statement is true at all in the NFL, depending no. on your team. But so, I mean, the last three Super Bowls, have been fielded by NFC teams who relied primarily and predominantly on the run game. Yes. And, and you know, we, we talked about quarterbacks coming in the league who may not be ready to play based on the college offenses that they came from. And does the running game then become more important as you go forward? Are teams going to allow quarterbacks, you know, who, who are not really ready to play, but they have to play. I mean, look at Jacksonville. Did they want Blake Bortles to have to do what he did last year? Absolutely not. No, they, they told had me, no they run. told me they didn't. They, they yeah. had no, yeah, no intention of that. You know, first of all, they had no intention of playing him. And second of all, when they did, they certainly didn't want him dropping back as often as he did. But they couldn't run the ball at all. So I guess for them, the running back isn't marginalized. Yeah, you know, they, well, they didn't it, expect Toby Guerra to look like a block of cement. Right, and 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 again, it, it it's a team. You know, look, it looks like I, I totally understand both sides of the Demarco Murray situation if you're the Dallas Cowboys. You know, track record suggests that backs that carry 392 times don't do well the next year. You know, we've seen that with very very few exceptions over the course of history. Okay, but the reality is the Cowboy team, team, not just the offense, ran through Demarco Murray. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it's easy to say, oh, they'll get another back. I, I don't know. Will they get another back? Are they going to get another back that's going to carry 390-plus times and gain 1,800 yards? Did, are, are those guys just – can anybody do that? I would compare the DeMarco Murray situation. I think it's very much like Terrell Davis and the backs that followed Terrell Davis. Terrell Davis was the 2,000-yard back. And then you had Olandis Gary and Mike Anderson, the UPS guy and the floor delivery guy, all getting 1,200 yards. DeMarco Murray is the extra 800 yards over the that, – that's his VORP. 
So yeah, I mean, look, the Cowboys with that old line, and if they're committed to running the ball, uh, whoever runs it for them will likely gain 1,300. You know, the guy's not going to gain 600 yards. But, you know, 392 carries and 1,845 yards, that's not been done a lot. No. And, and again, maybe I'm wrong. I'm sure people listening will disagree, and that's okay. That's These discussions are great. But... I'm always conscious of sort of these platitudinous comments, you know, it's a passing league, the running back's marginalized, Uh, you know, I mean, those things are easy to say, but, you know, Sometimes when you talk to coaches, you know, it's like years ago or not, not even that long ago when, when everybody was saying, oh, safeties, you can get them anywhere. Well, then you talk to coaches and they say, you know, we've got some really good tight ends in our division. And you know what? I need a really good safety. And, you know, so for that team, they're not marginalized or they're not unimportant. So it, it's a team by team, case by case situation. Platitudinous. My goodness. We've been reading our words today. Uh, yeah, we're reading our Robert Frost. Um, actually, I, I ask you for quick thoughts on two more guys. I haven't talked about Revis intentionally because I think he, we kind of know what he is. We know what he is. And by the way, um, I don't know if they're going to sign Cromarty, but um, I think signing Revis and Buster Screen is really good by the Jets. Well, really tell good me what you Jets. think of Buster Screen. I think Buster Screen is one of those feisty, competitive, tough corners. Obviously, he's 5'9", but he played outside the majority of this season because of the issues in Cleveland, and I thought he, he held his own and more than held his own. I think he held everyone else's own, which is why he had like 15 penalties, too. Yeah, but but I think he's a, you know, he's a, he's a good player. Uh, you know, he's... We, that's why we were talking about Brandon Boykin earlier being, you know, a guy you can possibly put out there. But, but I think, you know, what Todd Bowles wants with the Jets is he wants corners to can play man-to-man. And I think you're going to, you know, and Mike Patton wanted the same thing in Cleveland. And Buster Screen played a lot of man-to-man. Oh, we're going to go back to the Saints thing here. I'm just going to get your quick reaction to this. The Chiefs have acquired Ben Grubbs from the Saints for a fifth-round pick. So now you have Max Unger, who's hurt a lot, Grubbs out, and Jerry Evans, who did not have a good year last year. Well, the Saints are looking, you know, I, I don't know if they feel guys got too comfortable there. I, look, you know, sometimes when teams don't do well, and, and Sean Payton is, you know, he's, he's a pretty tough coach. I mean, he may feel that, hey, it's time to shake some things up here. Maybe everybody got a little too comfortable. I, I, you know, I can't, I'm not there, but... You know, obviously that team is looking to make some changes. Yeah. Uh, and I'll finish with one signing just from the, the, the number of years. Maybe they thought he had a down year. Micah Upati going to the Cardinals. Um, what are your thoughts about that? I mean, I think scheme-wise it works. It's it's unfortunate that Jonathan Cooper has been hurt because I know we both liked him a lot. What do you think of that? Yeah, they, they don't, to be honest with you right now. He has not become anything near the player they had hoped. So that's going to be an interesting situation to watch. Yeah. Um, you know, Yupati is – he did not have a great year last year, by the way. No. Um, it was probably his worst year in the NFL, uh, but, you know, I still think he's a good player. I think he's a talented player. Um, you know, I think that Bruce Arians knows that he needs to run the ball more effectively. I mean, they'll get Carson Palmer back. Bruce has great confidence in his ability to structure a pass game, and and uh, they love what they have with Palmer in the pass game. But I think he knows that they need to run the ball. And Yapati, at his best, is a very good run blocker. Oh yeah, he'll just he'll uh, he'll throttle people a lot. Well, Greg, uh, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to uh, to do this emergency free agency podcast. And next week we'll get back to the draft and we'll talk about all those running backs. Yeah.
yeah, it's a good class. I'm really anxious to see where guys go. I'm not, you know, that concerned about how many go in the first round, or, but I think this is a pretty good class. I've watched a bunch of them, and uh, I think there's some really interesting players of different types, too. Yep, absolutely. We'll go talk to some anonymous scouts, and uh, we'll get back with you next week. You mean they talk to me, Doug. I don't talk to them. They talk to me. Okay. We'll have your people talk to them. I just made that up. You know, it yeah. sounded good, but it doesn't mean anything. Uh, it probably didn't sound as good as you think, but, you know. Okay. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Never well, does. Never does, you know. Never does. We'll talk to you soon. All right. Thanks, Doug.